This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. To begin with today, I want to talk about traffic congestion, which is not fun, on Highway 403. Now, I see this every morning. Of course, we look out the back window, our radio station here at Main and Longwood, uh, oversees, of course, the, uh, the 403. And uh, I drive that road every day. And uh, at 4.30 in the morning, let me tell you something. If you're not up at 4.30 in the morning and you're not on the highway at 4.30 in the morning, it's busy. Really, really busy. Yeah. Most of it's truck traffic and it's, it's coming from the airport. Well, there is a report coming to Hamilton City Council from city staff that indicates that they should be petitioning the province right now to widen Highway 403 because of the volume of traffic that's on there. Guy Paparella is the Director of Growth Planning for the City of Hamilton, and he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Morning, Guy. How are you doing today? I'm fine, Bill. How are you? Great. Uh, this is a, <laughs> I saw this story this morning. I thought, boy, this is a report we could have done 15, 20 years ago <laughs> uh, because it was probably necessary then, but even more so now. Talk to us about the, 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 the idea of this report and why you, uh, you're putting it forth now. Well, uh, as you recall, uh, you were involved in the creation of the Airport Employment Growth District when you were on council. I do recall. Still have the yeah. battle scars for that. There you go, yeah. And, and you know, that was a long, hard battle, and we, we got it done now. Now we we're in the implementation stage, so we want to try and service it. And transportation is the really the key locational factor that brings business and, and uh, commerce to a community. And we're very lucky in Hamilton that we have rail lines, we have a great port, we have a fantastic airport, and we put about 1,600 acres around the airport to service, to be serviced uh, uh, for that particular reason, to try and attract businesses so that we can move product uh, in and out. But goods movement is critical to all that. You know, if you're going to create a logistics hub around the airport, you need to be able to move product in and out and uh suppliers uh people who are are you know in the in the commerce business of any kind they they need to move their product and they have to get there just in time uh, we're in that kind of a society now where everybody wants things yesterday and uh if you get hung up 2 or 3 hours in congestion that that really uh tips the apple cart and and makes people upset in terms of uh, and you can lose business. Um, in in this situation, uh, I'm in talking to the airport. A lot of the, it's the largest cargo courier airport, uh, fastest growing in Canada, and uh, we want to attract more businesses, like uh, uh, more cargo and courier type businesses. But the biggest complaint they have is they've got to get their product out of here before nine o'clock. And as you know, you you said four thirty. You probably have to get up at 4:30 just to get down the hill, because there's only two lanes going down, and that's the that's the problem. There's lots of room there to put another lane in. The province is aware of the problem, but now it's become much more acute, and we're we we don't want to lose business over this. Um, and congestion is a huge factor. We have to resolve this problem. And we have to make sure that the the goods movement, uh, the trucks that you mentioned, uh, can get to market and and pick up supplies and and turn around and and do the whole thing that they need to on a day to day basis. And it happens in the middle of the night, in the morning, and uh, evening isn't so bad. Um, coming up the hill back to the airport, but coming down the hill in the morning is is our biggest issue. So at a minimum, we need three lanes going down. 
there's room in the middle, they can do it, and um, it was recommended by a consultant who's working on the MidPen EA quite a few years ago, but we need action now. We need to, so we need to, to get more political about making sure that this becomes a priority for the, the wind government and, and make sure that uh, MTO is aware of the acuity of the problem. So, Guy, you've been on this file for a long time, meaning the airport and, of course, the the yeah. Yeah, ancillary problems and, and concerns and, and, I guess, obstacles that are happening on this. Uh why is is Hamilton always seem to be the last one at the at the trough here when it comes to stuff like this? Uh, I mean, Brampton's had their four ten uh, expansion on for about the last six seven years now. Yeah. Uh, they're constantly rebuilding and expanding roads in the Toronto and the GTA area. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hamilton was well, there was the mid pen you just talked about that was supposed to have been done years ago. Yeah, this thing with this uh, the uh, four three expansion has been talked about for the longest time, but that's all it's been so far is talk. It seems as if the province is dragging their heels on this. Well, I mean, the ministry does things in a very specific way. They have to make sure that there's warrants. They have to make sure that there's budget and so on and so forth. And to be honest, uh, we need to get uh, more political muscle uh, pushing our agenda in these types of, of situations. And I think uh, uh, that's what we're we're calling on upon uh, our council to do now because uh, we did it before. The mayor sent many letters and so on, but I think we need to be more vigilant about um, making sure that they take notice and that that Hamilton is the place to be now. It's growing. Our economy's doing very well, and we, we want to keep that going. We want to keep that pace going. If it stops because people are, are hearing that there's issues like congestion, they're not going to come here, okay? They're, they're, we don't want them to pass us by and go to other communities around us uh we want to make sure that they they see the the assets that we have the transportation assets that we have uh at their fullest potential and and the only way that could happen is if we don't have this problem so right now the 403 is a bottleneck and we have to fix it and we have to focus on it and we have to push as hard as we can politically technically and otherwise to make sure that it happens there's a mindset here that i i hope is not at play and because it was some years ago uh, and the mid-pen came into the discussion, and, and maybe the 403 gets grouped into that as well, yeah. where there was a government uh, mindset at that time, Guy, that, well, we don't need to build highways anymore. We mm-hmm. we have to de-emphasize this. You know, we're going to do you know public transportation, and if we get everybody who's in cars off the road, then there's yeah. a lot more room for trucks. And you and I both know that's a rather naive and simplistic approach. I mean, I, yes, we need more public yeah. transit, but... <laughs> If we don't have traffic and and and, and fast accessible uh, goods movement here, we're we're toast. Well, I I agree with you. I mean, uh, it's not a highway. It was a trade corridor. Okay, it moves products internationally from the U.S. down the you know continental one uh, eastern seaboard all the way down to to Florida and Mexico and everywhere else. I mean, this that was the whole point of it. It wasn't to generate you know, more car traffic. It was to move product from the GTAH, which is, you know, the biggest uh, manufacturing and and commercial entity in Canada, um, to have their products uh, uh, sitting in a truck on on the highway in a congested area. That's not going to attract more business. You know, we have to make sure that we can create a situation where commerce uh, and entrepreneurs can can flourish and be successful 
and these are the kinds of things that we need to fix. Uh, the transportation corridor, it's not just about a highway. I want to see a rail line alongside it because we need as many modes of transport working efficiently and effectively so that we can uh, succeed at, at creating jobs and creating assessment and making sure that uh, uh, businesses thrive here. But you've been involved in economic development and, and its growth uh, well, for the region before, and, yeah. you know, amalgamation, and now for the yeah. city for years. And, and here's the deal. Because what I'm hearing from some people, and I even heard it from some of the people I worked on council with way back when, were saying, look, you've got a great port, you've got an airport, yeah, you've got, you don't need roads. And, and, and that's, again, a very naive and, and uneducated opinion. The reality is you need all of them. I mean, anytime yeah. you say, well, we're going to ship stuff out of the port or, hey, it's going to go by air, at some point it's got to get on a truck. And if it doesn't that's get right. there on time and it misses that boat or it misses that plane, those guys are going to think about locating their business someplace else. Yeah, right now with the kind of container mentality that most businesses have, you put it on a ship on a container, you put that container on a rail car or on a truck. Those are the things. And if you don't have rail uh, accessible to businesses that, that need the product, you put them on a truck. I mean, the, most of the most of the product, uh, the goods movement is is on truck. It's not. Uh, well, that's so that's where the phrase intermodal comes from, and that's it's, right. it, it's you. It uses all of them, really. That's right. You need, and that's that's why we need to take advantage of that. We have one of the best intermodal transportation networks in Hamilton with all those facilities uh, operating great and uh, we need to take advantage of that and and we can't market it unless uh, those things are working efficiently and congestion along the 403 is just one of the aspects we we're targeting right now. I mean, to their credit, and I guess it was actually going all the way back to the Harris government, I mean, they did give us the Highway 6 bypass yeah. uh, right to the airport, and that's good. I mean, yeah. I, I, even that highway now uh, was supposed to be three lanes, and it's it's not, and it's and it's already congested. Yeah. Uh, so there's, you, you've got to address all of these problems right now, and this is, in the, again, right. to repeat, this is in the name of commerce that this needs to be done. Sure. Now, but you're being quite specific in the, in the report, and I want you to talk about that for a couple of seconds before they think this is some grandiose plan that's going to cause billions of dollars yeah. you're really talking about that highway six extension down just to about coots paradise aren't you i mean from there on in it's okay yeah yeah i mean we we're looking at at the hill essentially the, yeah. the, the so-called ancaster hill uh we need to get relief from the link or uh, even from highway six uh down the link uh, to Aberdeen and Maine. That, that's the key area. It's expanded beyond that uh, about as much as we can. We even had to cut into the into the uh, the the hill there on the one side there, yeah. and that's just finished up. And you can see the traffic opens up every morning. You can hear it on the radio. Ah, and everything's clogged up until you get to Main Street, and then it opens up. Well. That's why we need to fix that from Main Street to the link or up to Highway 6 there. There's lots of room for another lane, and I think we need to start really pushing hard to get that on the agenda and in the work plan for MTO as soon as possible. And and for those on council that are still... You know, one of these people that have these problems about about transportation and vehicular transportation, and 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 they're big proponents of public transit. That's great, I, but this is apples and oranges. We're talking about city yeah. to city transportation here, not yeah, what's I, going on on city streets. No, exactly. I mean, uh, public transportation is still important. It's a key component of any community of our size, or and and. But this is not what we're talking about. We're talking about moving goods from inter regionally and internationally. 
and that that's got very little to do with uh, the public transit uh, situation or argument. Um, you you have to have commerce moving on a daily basis uh, at particular times, especially peak hour times, um, in an efficient manner. And if you don't have that, then then you're relegated to to one of the have-nots, and we don't want to go there again. We've been there before, and we want, we're on a a uh, good upswing right now economically. We want to keep that pace going. And this is a provincial responsibility. This is a provincial highway. It is a provincial highway. Um, but I mean, if if they can't see the importance of this, then uh, uh, you know, then we they they're not paying attention. We need to make sure that they get a wake up call and they understand that this is critical to Hamilton to this part of the GTAH, and uh, we need to make sure. If you're not going to move forward with a, you know, a mid-pen type of situation or NGTA, as they call it now, a type of cord, trade corridor, then let's at least get something in the interim because, you know, five years from now, I don't even want to think about what the traffic's going to be like in these areas, um, you know, and, and we will start losing business if we don't uh, correct the problem. So we need to get ahead of it right now. Well, we got to get our heads around just how important the airport is to our economic future here. And, and sure. not, ju- not just Hamilton's, by the way, because I've, I've yeah. noticed uh, there are other communities, and Brantford comes to mind, yeah. where some yeah. businesses are actually marketing themselves as, hey, we're close to Hamilton Airport, because they yeah. know that Hamilton Airport's the largest cargo airport in the country. And exactly. That, so, so we're now getting... Niagara does that. Yeah. Halton, Halton uh, Burlington does that. Brantford does that. Even parts of Cambridge do that. I mean, there's businesses all over that utilize our airport, and I think uh, it's really important uh, to mention that. It is a regional hub, and it needs to be taken advantage of uh, in that way, and and there's more and more uh, businesses realizing uh, the huge advantage they have with the airport being here. Well, you know, it's a big, big asset for us, for instance, to have Pure Later up at the, at the airport yeah. right now. But they're yeah. only going to stay there as long as it's good business for them. And if their trucks that are they're leaving there every morning when I'm coming yeah. down the hill, if they're delayed and those things don't get there on time, they're going to start mm-hmm. looking for another airport like Pearson and say, too bad, so sad, Hamilton. And if we do that, that's a huge loss. You just can't, yeah. you can't wait for this to happen, can you, Guy? No, no. We, we have to move on this quickly. Um, you know, we could mention over and over again, but uh, we've got to uh, take really strong political action and make sure that the uh, people, uh, even an uh, MTO, from a technical standpoint, understand the, the value of this, and uh, not just to us, but provincially, for the economy, uh, the GDP increase and everything. I mean, we need to, to make this thing work. Uh, it has to work better than it is right now. Guy Paparella, who's uh, the Director of Growth Planning for the city, uh, this will come to council, uh, I, hopefully, uh, with a positive debate. Guy, thanks so much for the report, and thanks for the time today. Appreciate it. Okay, Bill. Thank you very much. Talk to you again soon, of course. Uh, you know, even the province's own growth plan, which is called Places to Grow, that they put in place some years ago, talks about Hamilton Airport as the key for the economic growth in this area and for the expansion that's happening. It's already started to happen. Now it's time for the province to put their, their money where their mouth is. And hopefully they'll respond quickly. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Something else that happened at City Council the other day. Um, They decided on Wednesday to move forward with spending millions of dollars on social housing in the city. This is part of this poverty initiative that uh, Mayor Eisenberger talked about. But uh, there was a bit of a hiccup. Well, a big hiccup, actually. Uh, when one councillor, uh, Councillor Donna Skelly, uh, wanted to table the report for a couple of weeks because of some of the concerns raised in the report about how that particular body that looks after housing, it's called City Housing Hamilton, 
is actually run. And uh, she was ridiculed, chided, uh, attacked uh, verbally, I guess you could say, by some of her fellow counselors for quote-unquote politicking. Interesting. John Best has been watching uh, City Council for many, many years. Uh, sometimes uh, I think it's uh, it's, it's uh, almost a masochistic uh, enterprise. But, I mean, he, of course, is the publisher of the Bay Observer. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. How are you this morning, John? I'm good. You're right. I can't stop punishing myself. <laughs> uh, talk about deja vu all over again. It just uh, runs in cycles. Well, let's. I, I'm going to get into why Donna Skelly wanted to table it in a second. Uh, there may have been some validity to that, but uh, I'm not so sure. I, I don't. Well, I know for a fact I don't agree with what she wanted to do, but but I understand the rationale behind this. But but here are some of the comments from some of the counselors. Uh, uncalled for, unconscionable, unprofessional, far too partisan. Uh, uh, playing politics here, trying to get headlines. Uh, is this the kettle calling the pot black, John? It sure is, and and the best one, the one that just killed me was uh, Sam Marula. He says, um, you know, we we've uh, we're accused her of looking for ways of getting headlines rather than governing. Here's a guy who has set some kind of a modern record for um, notices of motion that are intended largely to attract media attention. Uh, the biggest media hound on council. Uh, chiding uh, Donna Skelly uh, for looking for ways of getting headlines. I just couldn't believe it. In fact, the whole performance, it was really a disgusting performance by council. Um, they, they may have thought they put Skelly in her place, uh, but as somebody that's known her for 30 years, uh, she's got more cajones than any man on that council, and there is absolutely no way that she's going to be slapped down. It was uh, it was really a nasty performance. Uh, the the bullying, uh, you know, uh, people think that uh, you know if members of council think that they put her in her place, what they've really done is put their own really uh, dreadful performance on display for all to see. Well, and let's talk about that conduct. And and this is the thing that jumped out of me too. As to the the subject material, that's almost secondary now to the way that things happen. But, but John, this is not the first time we've seen this, nor it has been the last. We saw this during the stadium debate. We saw this during the uh, uh, inquiries into the Waterfront Trust. Uh, I mean, you've written pieces about it. Uh, you've been ridiculed by councillors. Uh, when Gary Santucci went before council and, and asked for an audit on the Waterfront Trust, uh, he was uh, verbally attacked by a number of people on city council, uh, where protocol just seems to get thrown out the window. If, if you say something that's, that they take personally and, and, and you're, you're, you're questioning something that they're doing right now, uh, they <laughs> professionalism is the last word that comes to mind when I see how they act. Well, uh, frankly, uh, I think what we're, what we're looking at here, Bill, is uh, I won't call it the tip of the iceberg, but, but clearly uh, we do have a serious problem with uh, the way money is distributed. Our, our whole, you know, it's boring language to use accounting talk, but we're, we're talking about controls. There have to be controls in the way... Uh, public money gets spent. And, you know, not only, I mean, the, the, that housing report, when you look at uh, at what was recommended there and the 20-odd uh, recommendations that he made, it, it points to a system uh, that, that is completely out of control from a financial um, standpoint. And, and so you look around that table, and, and you've got people that have been on that housing board uh, forever. No wonder they're defensive. They they are responsible. They've presided over this total lack of control, and no wonder they're defensive. And and then you get to the Waterfront Trust, which is 
another example of uh, you know making it easy for people to kind of help themselves to the public purse. When I say help themselves, I mean the organization, not individuals. Um, you know, and and there's been some issues raised about uh, whether we're paying any attention to these police budgets when they're put forward. I I think there's a deeper problem here around financial accountability. Well, the report itself, uh, I, I believe uh, the motivation for Councillor Skelly to want to table this was because she said, I bet most of my colleagues haven't read this, which, of course, uh, they probably took a front to as well. And, and but she's probably right. Uh, the, the concern here that was raised in the report about, about Hamilton, uh, lack of documentation to support how bids and quotes were invited, received and awarded, uh, change in orders, emergency situations, uh, awarded quotes were signed by somebody who didn't have the authority to sign them or they weren't signed at all. Not enough control over cash handling. Uh, companies have to pay to get bid documents. Uh, in some cases, one person did all the elements of procurement, solicitor of payment, which is against the rules. If Why is this allowed to happen? Uh, because we've heard these same inconsistencies with some of the operations at the Waterfront Trust. Yet when anybody on council dares or has the audacity to question these organizations, these guys take it as a personal insult and they go into attack mode. They really do, and uh, and of those you mentioned, the most egregious one is, uh, I think, the last one you talked about, uh, the segregation of uh, duties. So you got the same person deciding who gets to bid on this stuff, then that same individual awards the contract, uh, enters it into the uh, into the financial accounting system, supervises the work performed, and then it approves the invoices for payment. I mean that that is uh, uh, that that just cries out. Uh, well, I'm not accusing anybody. There's been no evidence of anybody doing anything wrong. But when you have a sloppy system like that, it just cries out for um, um, self-dealing, corruption, uh, cronyism. I mean, that that's a you know, in a modern uh, municipality with modern accounting systems, that's that's right out of uh, you know, that's right out of the 1930s. It's just brutal. Then, then why don't they have that level of accountability? Why is it that, that they set standards and set rules and set parameters for the way business is supposed to be done at the city, but if it's, a, it's an organization, and in this case, uh, in this particular case, of course, it's, it's one that, uh, that is also populated with Hamilton City Council, so it's called City Housing Hamilton. Why do they get a free pass? Why do, get, why do they say, oh, I know those are the rules, but you know what? These guys, will get, they'll fix this. Don't worry about that. Everything's going to be fine. Well, I, I think the problem, quite frankly, and I, I raised this issue uh, a while back in an editorial, I, I think we're getting into an area where the complexities, uh, the, the financial literacy of some of these members of council is so poor that uh, they really lack the qualification to do the job in a modern era. Uh, you simply have to have people around the table that can read a balance sheet, can understand procurement policies, and uh, this sort of uh, laissez-faire attitude uh, that allows these sloppy practices to, uh, to, to creep into a system. It's, it's really a function of the board governance, and no wonder they attack Skelly. I mean, these, you know, you got four or five of them sitting around the table. This all happened on their watch, and uh, they, they don't like it, and they certainly don't like it when, some, when an upstart like Skelly uh, starts pointing out that the emperor has no clothes. And I'm not here to defend Donna Skelly. All right? And was she playing politics? Yeah, probably. But so were they. Because here's the, here's the one, my read on this, John. From what I see, what happened around that table, 
Uh, is she raising this because she's trying to increase her profile? Possibly. We all know she's seeking higher office again. Uh, that that happens. But you know something? As Councillor Collins said, this, this is the silly season. It's the silly season for all of them because they're all looking for re-election next year, too. So there's that element of it. But here's here's the, the most frustrating element of, of what I thought happened here, is those councillors that were vilifying her for bringing up the inconsistencies that the report states, and those were not her accusations, that was the report that indicated the shortcomings right. in the department. She's simply pointing to the page where it was written. But they apparently said, we don't care what the report says. We're the ones looking for the headline here. We're one, we want a good news story that says we're doing this for, the, for the, the housing and we're doing this for the poverty problem we've got here in the city. They, that's the headline they wanted to see. They didn't want to see council tables the report because of inconsistencies in housing. They don't well, want that headline. They want, the, they want the good news headline. That's politicking. And then two or three of them, I, I think Jackson and I thought I heard Partridge, uh, trotted out this line that if you know that that what she was saying is that she's against uh, building uh, affordable housing, you know what what a intellectually dishonest line that was. And I had a chance to talk to uh, Donna Skelly uh, briefly about this, and she said, you know, uh, in her defense, she said, look, we were we're about to vote thirty million dollars. Should we raise the issue after we voted the money? You know, which <laughs> you got to ask. Apparently, yourself. yeah, that's what her colleagues think is, yeah. is the better way to go. Yeah, vote the money, and, and, and Chris Murray, who, who I think is, uh, you know, really an outstanding public servant, he uh, at one point was asked about, you know, whether he thought this delay should go through, and he, he said, well, we got a pretty good track record of, of uh, responding to these kinds of audits and these kinds of reports. He said, you know, we, we get on them and, and solve about 90% of the, of the problems, and I thought, well, God, that leaves 10% of a billion-dollar organization where maybe we're not as, as uh, sharp as we should be. And, you know, so there really was uh, just a total circling of the wagons on this issue. A lot of defensiveness was on display. Well, and it begs the question, how many other times does that happen where it doesn't come into our, into our focus? Well, uh, I, where, frankly, where, where the uh, attitude of counsel is nothing to see here. Don't work, Don't read the guts of the report, for heaven's sakes. Just take our word for it that this is okay. It would really be helpful if there was someone uh, on counsel who had a financial background, because uh, these, these issues are getting very complex. And, uh, you know, we, we've come a long way. Uh, a, a lot of counselors seem to think that as long as the tax levy, they're, they're all focused on the tax levy, and, and, of course, they've been somewhat conditioned to that uh, in in the way staff presents information. So as long as the tax levy is a percent or a percent and a half, we don't have to worry about the details of how the money actually gets distributed. That's a very, very bad uh, approach to take. I mean, we, we, you start, you, you take a look at what's happened in Brampton, um, you know, where, you know, uh, council was either asleep or some of them may have even been part of the problem. But you know, slush funds for giving bonuses to certain employees. And just, you know, we really got to be careful here that, that, we, uh, that we have uh, a council that's prepared to do its governance duty. You ran an editorial, John, in the Bay Observer uh, a week or two ago now, I, I, and it was basically along these same lines, and, and, and essentially it was asking, I don't think you wrote it, I think it was actually a contributor to the paper, uh, that, that maybe elected officials should actually go to school uh, and, and get some sort of an orientation program about exactly what their job is and what they need to do and what they need to learn and concentrate on. 
Uh, because right now, all you need to do is run for office, put your money down, and if you get elected, all of a sudden you're you're a counselor. That doesn't mean you're an expert on everything, but just means you're a counselor. And and you have to wonder about the qualifications of some people in situations like this. Well, uh, and I think AMO, the uh, the, the Association of uh, Ontario Municipalities, I think they actually offer a course in uh, in financial literacy. But you know, you you have to ask yourself if if uh, if the issue is that we we do understand finance, uh, then then the issue becomes then why are we allowing some of the sloppiness to to take place? I mean, the the charitable uh, conclusion is that they they simply don't get it, but uh, you know the 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 alternative to that is much more sinister. Uh, you know, are we allowing these things to go on uh, for? other reasons and i you know i don't want to go there but well uh, neither do i and i'm not going to point the finger at anybody but it makes you wonder and and it, it it brought back some memories like i say i brought up the issue of the waterfront trust uh i remember during the stadium debate do you remember at one time there was a discussion about actually uh looking at a potential site up on the east mountain uh, up near the uh, well they call it the the uh, the meadowlands of, of stony right. creek out there there was a p- parcel of land there was something about a land swap long story yep. short they asked city staff to come up with a report about the viability of it and and i i found the report disgusting and the only one who actually raised a, the issue was brad clark at the time first of all i think it was his jurisdiction but he looked at the report and he said, "You, they've double counted this cost, this cost, this cost. This is bogus. This was a report that was written to make this proposal look bad, and it was full of inaccuracies. And the rest of council looked at this guy like, what are you doing bringing that up? You're not supposed to talk like that in open forum. And, and, they, and this is what happened with Councillor Skelly, is you get vilified here if you, tr- if you try to seek the truth and you try to say, wait a second, let's not move so fast on this. I think this needs more analysis. Well, and uh, you know whether whether the two week delay would have uh, necessarily uh, have been of any great value. I don't know because it would really depend on what's happening during the two weeks. But it was pretty clear there were four or five people around that table that had no interest whatsoever in uh, in reading the report or or doing anything about it. I, I noticed the one issue, the, the the one that I thought was the most urgent was this business of the same person being able to, you know, take a project through all of its various steps. And uh, on, on the management response, they say, uh, we'll, we'll get this solved by the fourth quarter of 2018. So that means we're gonna, uh, presumably we're going to have another year of the same person uh, being able to elect contracts and approve invoices. Uh, you know, I just don't get a sense of urgency here, uh, either by the board or by the organization, although uh, the latter may be somewhat unfair, but certainly the board sees no urgency here, apparently, in, in moving more quickly on some of this stuff. If you were not in journalism and if you were in John Best Enterprises and you made widgets uh, and you found out that in your purchasing department people were signing uh, purchase orders and things of that nature and quotes that had no authority to sign them, <laughs> what would you do? Uh, would you just say, oh, let's, let's try to get that fixed in the next year and a half, could we please? Let's work on it. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, no. In Somebody's the get, sector, somebody gets hauled up on the carpet for that. Yeah, I mean, in the private sector, these things would be corrected overnight. Uh, you know, I, uh, but unfortunately, we're, we're dealing with a situation where, you know, you've got uh, labor rules and whatnot. And I'm not suggesting anybody should be fired. But, I mean, I think really what's required here is a pretty wholesale reorganization of, of some of the department and and get some people out of roles that they're obviously not suited for but uh you know to to suggest that 
to have a situation like that going for another year, uh, you know, that that would be that would be troubling to me for sure. It's it's almost as if council is saying, "Don't worry about the details. Uh, we just you know trust us. We'll look at everything here." Uh, and and like you say, there's one or two options here. When 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 council, the majority of council. Uh, decides to move on without having asked questions of the, uh, what I think are some some pretty serious concerns about uh, about city housing. Uh, that either means that they don't care or they don't understand, and and both of those are are rather troubling. Well, they've they've really uh, you know I'm, I'm, the short term thing is uh, hey we beat up Skelly uh, she's a pain in the butt uh, you know let's have some fun at her expense but the the real message uh, for anybody that uh, that reads that or watches that roughly 30 minutes of attack is they've they've put their own failure on display uh their own governance failure they they really uh you know you really got to ask yourself whether some of these people are really up to the job in tw- in 2017 2018 well i mean and it's the same bs you know that you know, you know if you're you kneel during the anthem it means you hate america i mean that's that's a, and, and and the accusation that she wanted to hold this up because she doesn't want to support the housing part that's that's baloney too and we know that is yes. but you need to have a discussion about the shortcomings and the and the guts of the details about what's going on in that department before you commit the money to it uh and 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 for that well, I guess anybody on council that that rocks the boat is going to be the target of of the ridicule for the fellow councillors, and that's uh, that's uh, as some people would say business as usual at city council. Well, uh, the the one difference uh, with with this individual councillor is that she will not uh, back down to these people. All the old intimidation stunts, the standing recorded votes, all those stunts uh, will have zero effect uh, on uh, the Donna Skelly that I've known for. <laughs> for quite a while. She, that just uh, is not going to work. Well, we'll see what uh, happens the next week. There's always a page to be turned here. John, thanks as always. Appreciate the time today. My pleasure, Bill. John Best of the Bay Observer. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. This is a rather disturbing story in many people's minds. Uh, we heard this on Global News yesterday. Uh, two years after his drunk driving uh, conviction killed three Brampton children and their grandfather, it looks as if uh, Marco Muzzo uh, may be getting parole, may be actually getting what they call unescorted temporary absence. How does something like this happen? Is this all part of the process? Let's ask uh, Jeff Madison, criminal lawyer with Ross McBride here in town, of course, former Crown attorney as well, and always a welcome guest on our program. How are you this morning, Jeff? Just great, Bill. How about you? Excellent, excellent. Uh, I'm wanting some answers and some clarity on this because, you know, you and I have talked about this in the past, and there's always outrage when we hear about these convictions and these sorts of incidents uh, that occur. And uh, there are those, uh, some of them were in government a few years ago, that suggest you're supposed to just take these people and lock them up and throw away the key. But there's a process in place. Maybe you could explain that to us. Sure, and I should start by saying happy 90th to CHML. Thank you. Um, to, to deal with uh, what's involved here, let's break down two key differences between the sentencing process and the conditional re- release program. Sentencing is where the judge is going to determine what's a just and appropriate sanction for the conduct. And, uh, you know, do you consider it to be punishment? Many do. Is it meant to take into consideration how to express society's abhorrence for the conduct in question? Try and send the message to other like-minded offenders not to do this. Trying to send the message to the individual, don't do this. Trying to protect the public. A host of different factors 
to try and as well as what uh, takes into consideration the offender's prospect for rehabilitation, what are aggravating circumstances on sentence to raise it, mitigating circumstances to reduce it, and find a balance and also consider other case law that may be in similar circumstances and identifies or a prevalence of the offense in the community might justify a higher sentence and take into consideration victim impact evidence. All those things go into the mix. And the judge comes up with a sentence which here in this case was 10 years. Fine. That's the sanction. That's the punishment. The world of con- conditional release, parole and temporary absences, and they are different, we'll come back to that in a minute, mm-hmm. are not meant to be punitive. Now we're trying to determine what risk the offender would pose if we are going to consider releasing him or her into the community, subject to the kind of factors that a parole board, whether provincial or federal, will have to consider. So you might say, well, where's the punishment in that? No, no, no. The punishment comes with the 10 years. It's a different issue at the stage of after punishment, when might the individual be fit to be released using certain statutory terms, conditions, and guidelines, as well as a consideration of parole authorities to put the per- let the person get back into the community. And it's important to remember that when somebody is released on parole, that parole is potentially suspendable and revo- or revocable if the person screws up. We and sh- the person could then be reincarcerated. So that's, that's, that's sanction on sentence versus parole, and a separate issue is unescorted temporary absence, which I'll come to in a sec. But, Bill, let's start with that. Okay, and we should mention, by the way, that uh, the, the report I saw in Global News about this uh, indicated that, uh, that Muzzo uh, actually has been uh, moved from a medium to a minimum security prison and is expected to apply for unescorted temporary absence. He has not yet applied, and certainly, by extension, has not been granted this, but it's out there, and it is a possibility, and that seems to have outraged some people. Does that surprise you? Well, yeah, sure it does. I mean, this case was highly emotionally charged. If it happened once, it happened a dozen times that I saw this poor woman whose children and whose father had been killed in the accident appearing on TV on the steps of the courthouse, Mm -hmm. outlining again and again how uh, emotionally overwhelming and devastating these events had on her and her family and her life, and it couldn't help but evoke sympathy. And uh, that, if I recall, when he wanted to, when Mutsa was going to speak at the time of sentencing to apologize, she walked out. And there are lots in society who would say, yeah, I do the same thing. And there are others in society who will say, look, you know, we're, we're going to allow for the fact this happened. And I'm going to have, I, I want to see a proper justice system, given the proper level of punishment. So that's, that's always a question of how individuals react. But yeah, the emotional reactions, Bill, I will harken back to a story years ago. You may remember that during the time of the Harper regime, there was a story floated out that Carla Hamolka was going to apply for a pardon. Yeah. Okay. Do you know that the, the firestorm that flew out, flew out of that led to Harper and his government changing the Criminal Records Act? Okay. On the rumor, I mean, there, there were other issues too, but in part on the rumor of Carla Hamolka apply for a pardon, we better change the legislation. And what they did was quadruple the cost of applying for a pardon, make you have to apply for longer, change the language. It's no longer a pardon bill. It's now called a record suspension. So, but let's go back and let's assume for the moment, what if Mr. Muzzo did in fact apply for an unescorted temporary absence? What is that? And you and your intor equated temporary absence with parole. It's not the same. Okay. What are the differences then? Unesc- there, are, there are different forms of release passes you can get from a jail, and the move from medium to minimum can happen for, you know, anybody who would qualify within the, the nature of the risk the individual poses, how he's performed within the institution. People regularly get moved. They might get moved up to maximum security. 
or move maximum down to medium and down to minimum. I mean, they have different levels of security within the institutions, depending on the individual's flight risk, risk of violence to others, you know, rehabilitative prospects. So they have those forms of institutions. We'll park that one. Unesc- escort a temporary absent pass, let the person return to a particular community for a specific period of time, potentially escorted by. It could be a correctional officer or it could be a family member. Unescorted means there's nobody going with them. But it's not indefinite. It might be that he can return home for a weekend. It might be that he can return, for a, to return home for a day and then go back to the institution. That's what that is. That's what an unescorted temporary absence pass is. And it is provided for uh, that it, legislatively that when somebody has done a sixth of his sentence, okay, and by that I mean he's eligible for parole after serving a third. Okay, so here on a 10-year sentence, three and a third years, if my math is right, is that 40 months? So he's eligible to apply for unescorted temporary absence passes at 20 months, at half that. But he might do a weekend pass and then back and continue on in the institution. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about out on parole. We're talking about out for a weekend. And there might be a certain number of those he can have, and part of the process is to... In his case, it may not be as critical, but reintegrate the individual into the community. I, I think that's maybe what's bothering an awful lot of people is is that that math, uh, Jeff. I mean, he was sentenced February fourth, twenty sixteen, and here we are now, almost the end of September in twenty seventeen, and they're saying this guy is going to be allowed out. And 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 by the way, that's that's assuming that all this falls into place. He could be denied. Uh, well, we don't sure, we don't know what's going to happen. Sure, but he's not going to pose any risk, and he's going to have community support. And I'll bet you he's been a model inmate. So I guess the idea of it, Bill, is the community is outraged that after he's done 20 months of his 10-year sentence, he could be allowed out for two days. That's the issue. Oh, the community has the right to be outraged if they want to be, but they can't say, wait a minute, he's getting parole, he's out already. No, he might be out for a weekend. He might be out for a couple, might be one a month. Okay, he might be out for one, who knows. The institution will determine how many of those he can get. But let's just say, for example, over the he, once he's done 20 months, so he's done a sixth. So between month 21 and month 40, when he's eligible for parole, how many of these passes he, is he going to get? He might get a number of them. But he's not in the community on a full-time basis. We don't know the details. Like I say, I don't know what kind of a, a, a prisoner Mutso has been. And, and, you know, and obviously that's going to weigh into this. So, I mean, a lot of what we're talking about here is conjecture, obviously. But, but what needs to happen or how egregious does the offense have to be that, that they would say, you know what, you know, 10 years is 10 years. Well, I mean, there's always going to be parole. We get that, the possibility of parole in situations like this. But, but I think a, a lot of people are saying, wait a second, this guy was a serial offender. This is not the first time he was caught intoxicated behind the wheel. Uh, and that certainly factored in. I guess it factored into the sentencing that went into place here, too. Although, as you could recall, Jeff, a lot of people were outraged that he only got 10 years for what had happened that day. Uh, and on and on it goes. So I guess that, that anger only boils up when you find out, wait a second, this guy's just being treated as if this was a, a first offense in some people's minds. Well, no, it's not a first offense that he got 10 years, Bill. And again, what, what you've just outlined is the blurring of the difference between sentencing and parole. You basically equated the two. And you're looking at parole as well, still punishment. I don't know, remember what I started with? The differences between the two and the 10 years is meant to sanction the conduct. And the parole process is conditional release back into the community. So it's a separate kind of track. And they'll identify, to answer one of the questions you built into there, you know, what does it take? It's a, there's a provision available in the criminal code, but it's meant for people who are really showing a high likelihood of reoffending, where Crown can apply to have parole ineligibility at a half, not a third. 
Okay, so that's something that, that is available, but there's legal tests in relation to that, so it's not automatically saying bad offense will make it a half. No, it's not that way. Likely to reoffending, okay, potential risk on release, multi long history of offending and breaching parole and so forth, you might say make it a half. Um, what kind of person does it take, Bill? There are, you may have an individual who represents a sufficient risk to the community of reoffending. And remember, I keep using that language. Yep. Risk to the community of potentially reoffending might determine the individual doesn't qualify for parole. Maybe the individual has been violent within the institution. Maybe the individual has continued to uh, refuse to take treatment for the kinds of conditions that might have led to the offense. Okay, maybe he's got a fair history of parole violations. And they might say, no, you aren't getting out, and you're going to have to stay until statutory release date, which is you have to do two-thirds of your sentence. And, and that, it may, and again, it may it, even be that if you at that stage, and Carlo Moco is one of these, poses such a grave risk, they'll take you to a warrant expiry date, meaning you'll have to do every day of it. So there, that's called being gated. The image of it, Bill, you've done your third, you didn't qualify for parole, you're in there. You're doing two-thirds, and then you get into a, an issue, of course. So you're in until two-thirds. We're going to release you, but on statutory uh, release, so there is still going to be supervision by a parole authority, and you're still vulnerable to being brought back into the jail to finish that sentence. Are there restrictions? Okay. Can, can restrictions be imposed? Like I'm, I'm assuming here, Jeff, for instance, if, if he applies for this, uh, and if it's granted, they're going to say, yeah, but you're not getting behind the wheel of a vehicle. Absolutely. He's already got a driving prohibition bill. Well, and I think, he, I think he had sentence. one before, but he, you know, he seemed to... No, 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 but, but part of his sentence on, on this offense, I don't recall how long it was. I'm sure it could have been life. Certainly, I'm sure it would have been 10 years, 15 years. He'd be violating the criminal code, the judge's order, if he drove. Never mind parole. He's already violating a judge's order. So, sure, part of the unescorted temporary absence, I'm sure it would say not to drive, of course, and probably not to drink. But, but to return to the question then, so you have somebody who's done two-thirds, they're still a risk, fine, they're held to a warrant expiry date. What happens then, Bill? So they're done every day of it, and then, boop, you're back in the community, see ya. Well, what about supervision? Well, there isn't any. What about the reintegration of the society? Well, there isn't any. That's what you get when you make somebody do every day. Okay. So let's come back to Mr. Muzo, and there are people like him who have, you know, limited history. I didn't recall offhand, Bill, that he had a prior impaired conviction, did he? I, I can't recall if there was a conviction, but I do remember some of the, the, the discussion during the trial itself was that, uh, I'm, I, I'm, and again, I'm doing this off memory. I don't have the facts in front of me. I've just got the news story from Global here, uh, is that, uh, that, that, that he had been involved in uh, or failed breathalyzer or something. I think there was a history there of, of intoxication, and I, I can't remember how severe it was or whether or not there had been I, any punitive I, I action. I didn't recall that this was a second offense, but either way, second or first. And the 10-year sentence bill, I can tell you, is a significant sentence compared to other sentences for other drinking and driving fatalities. I know because I've dealt with them. Okay? And this case got substantial publicity and attention. This case was extremely emotionally overwhelming. And, uh, you know, so the circumstances were, were terribly egregious. And so 10 years, I mean, the Crown didn't appeal it to get it higher, and the defense didn't appeal it to get it lower. 10 years, if I gave you a, a chart with other sentencing for criminal negligence causing death with multiple fatalities, you'd find this towards the higher end of the range. Okay, so now let's come back to the issue. You say, what we're doing is we're saying, gee, we're carrying over that 10 wasn't enough. Well, some would say life wouldn't be enough. And some would say life, no parole would be the appropriate disposition. And I understand, you know, that everybody has their own opinions with respect to sentence. All I can give you is the way we deal with it in the justice system is not purely 
based on emotion. Now, if it's not purely based on punishment, when when uh, Mr. Mutsu or anybody else in a circumstance similar to this uh, does at some point apply for parole, uh, there's a hearing, there's a parole board that makes right. uh, makes that determination, and and I believe in most cases, I mean, we've heard some of the more uh, celebrated cases, I guess. Uh, where the families of victims are allowed to have statements, or at least you know, are, are allowed to to submit statements in situations like this, but that I would think is not the case if somebody applies for unescorted temporary absence. Um, that's an interesting question, Bill, and I can't give you an automatic answer in relation to that. You're right in terms of parole, okay, and it may well be that you know, victims' family, you know, members may well say, "Gee, we have some concerns about this, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. I mean, I know of cases in which, on, for example, on murder, where family members of the, you know, of a victim have been concerned about an individual getting unescorted temporary absences or temporary absences because they're concerned for their safety, their safety because of the crime. Okay, and they may they've gotten an opportunity to get you know information before the correctional authorities on that process. If I'm not mistaken, by statute. Victims for parole purposes are allowed to have the opportunity to be heard, whether it's in re- written form or, uh, or actually making a, making a submission or a statement. Uh, on the UTA, on the score to temporary essence pills, Bill, I would say it may be the case. I'm just not 100% sure on that one. But, well, but, you know, in this one, let's take that one for a sec. The position of the family of the victim wouldn't be we're afraid of him doing something to us. It would be look at our loss, look at what we're going through. Him being out in the community has the potential to cause us more emotional distress just to know that he is out. Well, how does that accord with what the correctional authorities have to consider for risk of reoffending, of danger to society? Okay, they don't quite line up. So now correctional authorities have to consider, and when you have news stories like this one, okay, and public attention like this, a great question, Bill, would be if you were sitting on that correctional authority body, parole board or correctional institution deciding on UTAs, and a case had a lot of publicity, would that, should that affect your opinion on whether the person should or shouldn't get out? Because the case has got a lot of publicity, because the case is emotionally charged. Or put differently, if you were satisfied, Bill, the person could get out for the weekend without posing risk to anybody, but the case got a lot of publicity and you'd be criticized, what would you do, Bill? That's, I'm going to leave that as a rhetorical question because we're out of time, <laughs> which is me getting off the hook here. Uh, uh, but I thought I had you. But, yeah, well, cross-examination. Well, I'm going to tell you, Jeff, when he does apply for this, you and I have to pick up this conversation again because I have talked to people that have served on the parole board, and I'd like to, to go down that road a, a little bit more, but we'll do that another day. Thanks, we'll let so. you reserve your judgment, but I want your answer next time. <laughs> you got it. Okay. <laughs> uh, boy, you're tough on, the, on witnesses, I'm telling you. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Jeff. <laughs> okay, no pleasure. Bye. Jeff Madison, of course, criminal lawyer with Ross and McBride. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.